Welcome back to another season of Bruin Success, the UCLA podcast of career stories and helpful strategies from alumni who work in diverse industries around the globe. Every Bruin has unique passions, interests, and experiences that have shaped their life path and career trajectory. I'm Gloria Ko. I lead our alumni career engagement team, and I'm a double alumna. Being in this role, I've had the luck to be in many rooms and Zooms where alumni have shared their triumphs and their failures, and this podcast was created with our Bruin community in mind. And I'm Carolyn Granger, also part of the alumni career engagement team. And together, in partnership with UCLA Alumni Association, we're excited to invite inspiring alumni to share their professional journey with the Bruin community. This includes examples of success and also challenges and pivots, like every good career story. Not everyone is a CEO, founder, or public figure, but each of us has a unique story to share. Our first interview of the year is Matt Kesmerick. He's a 2004 graduate of UCLA and has had a fantastic career in the White House, public service, and in the finance world. He took some time to share with us a bit about his journey and how he defines Bruin success. Welcome to our first guest of 2022, Matt Kazmarek. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be with you. So thank you for joining us today. 2022 has been an interesting start uh, for all of us, um, but we're excited to just hear about your career journey, learn from your experiences, and also just to get us you know, on the right track for 2022. And so looking at your career path, you started from the Department of Treasury to the National Security Council to the White House. You taught as an adjunct, adjunct professor, and now you serve as head of, a sustainable, of sustainable investing and macro policy research at BlackRock. Tell us about your professional journey um, from you know, being the president of the UC Student Association um, to politics and public service. I know that's a lot, um, but what were some pivotal moments for you? That's right. It's a lot. And, and it's a great question. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me, first of all. And thanks for inviting me to, to come talk a little bit about the uh, cool experiences I've been able to have in my career thus far. And I think, you know, if, if there's one story that connects all the interesting things I've been able to do in my career, it is just, you know, a passion to find something interesting and find something I'm passionate about and find and seek out good opportunities and just take advantage of them where they turn. And, uh, you know, if, if you look at my background, which you just went through a number of, of cool things I've, I've been able to do, uh, you know, there's not an obvious story there. So let me tell you a little bit about the story. So not surprisingly, it all begins at UCLA, um, where I was uh, initially exposed to student organizing and student politics and got involved with, uh, you know, some of the student organizing issues right in the immediate aftermath of the end of affirmative action, which happened in the late 90s. So I entered UCLA in the fall of 99, which I believe was the first class uh, that was admitted without affirmative action. And there was a steep drop off in uh, student of color community populations at that time. Uh, and I got interested in those issues. I got interested in student retention and student initiated outreach in how we use student fee money in order to expand access to education, issues of student fees, and, and some of these big issues that you know, I knew were formative for the university and were important to protecting the cultural identity that UCLA had worked so hard as a public service institution to achieve. 
that led me to get involved in in some of the you know campus committees. I served on the student fee advisory committee. I was elected to USAC, uh, and and I was elected to USAC as the external vice president. So it was my job uh, to represent the students of UCLA and advocating for issues that affect them outside of campus at the state and national level. That exposed me to national politics. It got me up to Sacramento. I was elected president of the University of California, the system-wide student association that represents all 10 campuses. So I got to testify in the legislature and I got a taste for what it means to actually be able to have an impact on the issues that you care about and that you're passionate about. And it was it was this real eye-opening experience for me who you know, grew up as sort of a middle-class kid in you know, basically rural Northern California. Uh, and came to UCLA kind of to discover what the world was all about. Uh, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a family of bankers or policymakers or wealth and privilege, right? And and UCLA uh, was the first time I felt like it opened my eyes to there being opportunities to really have an impact on some of these bigger questions that you care about and that you're passionate about, but maybe you don't know how to get involved in. And I suddenly realized, you know, more people need to do that. So. Uh, you know, I, I worked my heart out during during school. I served on the board of the United States Student Association, got involved lobbying Congress, got, uh, you know, took trips to Washington. And then I decided when I graduated that I was going to move to Washington. Uh, and I thought I had a job lined up. Uh, the job fell through, uh, but I moved anyway. And I worked as a, as a field organizer on the 2004 presidential campaign. So I got a little bit of experience with uh, not just student politics, but real electoral politics at that time. And then I had this critical moment in 2004 where I was living in Washington, going through my very first winter on the East Coast, which uh, is, is a pretty intense experience uh, for a kid from California who's never seen snow, you know, <laughs> never seen snow on, on a daily basis before. Um, and and had to find a job and was running through savings and I, I ended up getting you know a fine job and and doing something that was mildly interesting but it wasn't anything that I was passionate about uh, and I and I realized that I loved how different the East Coast was I loved the proximity that I felt to policymaking and and to uh, decisions on these big these big picture issues but I wasn't inspired by the work that I was doing. So I moved back to Sacramento. I became a fellow. Uh, I got a position in the executive fellowship program in Sacramento. Uh, you know, the the placement I had was uh, working for the state treasurer, who was running for governor at the time against Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, so I got to work first in his policy office in the state treasurer's office and learn the importance of finance in in the public sector. Uh, and how governments finance themselves and how we fund large infrastructure projects and social financing programs and programs to help people buy homes and all of those kinds of policy issues that I had never really appreciated before. And then I got to work on his political campaign after my fellowship was over. And I, I ended up, I had this really cool experience where I was what they call the body person. So I was the guy who follows around the candidate, is always in the car with him, holds his briefcase. You know, you never see a political candidate holding a briefcase or a tissue. Uh, but there's someone right behind them who always has their papers and their cell phone and their wallet and their briefcase and all of that. Uh, so I got to be that person, which at 23 years old, 24, however old I was at the time, to be able to have that exposure to the political process at a race of that caliber at that moment was an incredibly form, an incredible opportunity uh, that I just kind of fell into. So I did that, but it also taught me that you know politics is really about this competition for values and ideals, and it's less about what's the right answer to a policy problem. And I felt at the end of, we lost the campaign, right? We were running against Arnold Schwarzenegger. How are you gonna win that campaign? 
uh, we lost the campaign and I decided it was time to go back to grad school uh, and get a grounding in the kind of policy analysis, the issues I cared about. I wanted to learn more about finance, which I had begun working on in, in my fellowship. Uh, and I wanted to use grad school to make this big pivot. And maybe we'll come back and, and talk about that. But uh, you know, I was working in Sacramento in the in the political space, and I wanted to really gain policy credentials and then go into a more professional policy field. When I finished grad school, I graduated into the financial crisis, poor timing. Uh, I got my master's degree in 2009 from uh, Johns Hopkins and uh, had been hoping to go into financial markets because I wanted to actually get some experience with uh, how capital is allocated, how investment decisions are made. Um, you know, potentially work with policymakers, but from a, a financial market perspective, and at least get that experience, which seemed so foreign to me. Both of my parents had worked in the public sector and the private sector had never really been anything I had experience with, contrary to most of my most of my peers and colleagues. So uh, the financial crisis was obviously difficult for all students at the time. Uh, but I had I had done a couple of cool internships in Washington where I had been going to school. One of them was for the Treasury Department uh, during the previous summer, uh, and I was there when Bear Stearns failed. And then I had done an internship. I was in, I was actually an intern in the White House uh, at the Council of Economic Advisors when Lehman Brothers failed in the fall of two thousand eight, mm -hmm. and that was an amazing you know vantage of. Uh, watching how policymakers respond to a series of unanticipated events. And I was so taken by, you know, people's selflessness and their interest in finding good policy solutions. So I went to work for the Treasury Department. They offered me a job. Luckily, no one else was hiring. Uh, I, got a, I got a great job offer working for the Treasury Department. And I said, you know, this is going to be the right, this is going to be an interesting place to be for, for as long as it's an interesting place to be. Uh, I spent four years there, and then I got the opportunity, I got the invitation to go work at the White House uh, and made that transition. And that that was an interesting transition as well. We can talk about that one, too. Yeah. Uh, ran out three years at the White House, um, was exhausted, went to the mm -hmm. State Department because I wanted a little bit more of a, of a regular schedule. There's no such thing as a regular schedule when you're working nope. at the White House. Uh, ended up at the State Department and, and ran through the tape. At, at that point, I had, I had been a career employee of the federal government when I was hired by Treasury. But over the years, I had to convert to a political appointee as I was working for President Obama in the White House. So I knew that I would lose my job when he left office at the end of 2017. We all in the Obama administration probably crossed our fingers that we were going to pass on the uh, government to uh, uh, Secretary Clinton. That obviously didn't happen. And I think that experience you know, I was in the eye of the storm of the 2016 election. Um, and, and that experience sort of shook me and caused me to, to think really about what I wanted to do in the next phase of my life. So I, when I left government in uh, 2017, I actually came back to LA uh, because I wanted to get as far away from Washington as I could. I bought a one-way ticket uh, on the night of January 19th, the night before uh, President Trump was inaugurated on January 20th from Washington to LA. And I had convinced one of my best friends to run for Javier Becerra's open congressional seat. And mm -hmm. it, was, it was partially out of self-interest because I needed a job and I needed something to do. And I had all this pent up political energy from uh, having helped to facilitate the Trump administration transition from my role in the State Department. Uh, and I, you know, and, and I decided, you know, let's spend the winter in LA. Let's run this, this quick special election campaign. And I get to wear t-shirts and knock on doors and advocate for the person, you know, my good friend who I want to win this election. And that'll be a good thing to keep you busy for a few months. So I did that, took some time off, came back to that 
you know, that original passion that I had had about wanting to work in financial markets, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and realized that, you know, if uh, long term, I was headed back to California, it's, it's always been my home. Uh, and if there was ever a time to live in New York City, that sort of, you know, was in the back of my head, but that was probably the time to do it. So for me, luckily, uh, the opportunity uh, at my current firm came together with the desire to live in New York City. And, uh, you know, after a few months of kind of wandering around Wall Street and getting the lay of the land and feeling out the different firms, uh, I, d I settled on the one I, I uh, accepted the offer at and, and moved up to New York City. And it's been a great experience ever since. Wow, that's it's been quite a journey, but it seems like your just tenacity and you just pivot when you see an opportunity or you you have to make a change. And 2016, you know, that was like, okay, you gotta go. You know, you have something different to do. That's it's been really cool to hear just about how how you went from UCLA and then now where you are in New York with BlackRock. I did have a question, you know, just to going back to some of the things that you were talking about. Yeah. You know, you were involved with student politics at UCLA, and many of our students who are part of student politics now, they're community organizers. Um, you know, what has been a difference that you've seen with student politics and then also with politics in DC or even, you know, running campaigns and things like that? You know, what are some takeaways like has been a really big difference that maybe you thought, oh, I know how to do this, but maybe you were like, oh, this is really new or was it very similar? Do you yeah. feel like, how was It's that? a great question. The first thing I can say is at least at the time that I was a student and we were running student campaigns, whether they're organizing campaigns or, or political campaigns, student government campaigns, they were so much better organized when we were our students and we were throwing, you know, 150% of our time and effort and passion into it than my experience in, in electoral politics, which is, which is not that inspiring, except to say that I think that, you know, getting involved in the issues that you care about on, on campus is an incredible education, an incredible uh, set of experiences to bring to continuing that work uh, as you grow into your professional life. And it doesn't matter ultimately what you end up doing as a professional career, you you know, I, 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 I always have this political itch, no matter what I've done in my career, the political itch has always been there. So, you know, I, I took this fellowship right after college where I was working on policy for the state treasurer's office, but then I ended up working on the treasurer's political campaign, right? Then I went to grad school and I worked in the treasury department and I took a lot of pride in being sort of a policy analyst, a technocratic, you know, I'm, I'm not here to make the decisions. I'm not here to run the campaigns. I'm just here to provide the elected officials and the policymakers with the best recommendations and the best analysis. And yet I ended up working for President Obama in the White House in a, in a pretty political role. Then, you know, I, I took time off. I ran as far away, well, when I got ejected from the State Department in 2017, obviously I ran straight to electoral politics uh, at that time because my I had convinced my friend to run for Congress, and and that felt like coming home. It felt like you know no matter how long you're away from Los Angeles, the the players are the same, the issues are the same, the work continues, you make incremental progress, you fight for the thing, the values that you have, uh, and it felt very comforting to come home and work on that for a little bit. Then I ventured, you know, up to New York and took this job on Wall Street. And yet immediately I was drawn to, number one, uh, public policy and wanting to still be involved in the policy debate and help work to inspire people, young people, college students to 
get involved in the issues that they care about and find a role for themselves in the public policy debate and the public policy process. And mm -hmm. I found that by becoming an adjunct professor at, at NYU, uh, where you know I was basically hired to tell stories about working in the White House, because everybody loves to hear stories, especially at that time in the early days of the Trump administration, everybody wanted to hear stories about working for President Obama, uh, which was great. Um, and then since then, I found other roles. So I, you know, I was able to serve as uh, an economic advisor on one of the leading 2020 presidential campaigns, and and that was fun. And and so even though you know you might not work in public service directly, there's so many ways that you can get involved and and have an impact. And uh, I think I think the the learning I did at UCLA and the experience I had back on campus taught me about many of those different opportunities that really wouldn't manifest themselves until later in life. And one thing that I also noticed um, in your experience is that not only are you involved with advocacy, but you've also invested in growing your expertise um, when it comes to economics. Um, yeah. you, you know, you were serving in the Department of Treasury, you know, within a certain geographic location, right, with you know, South and Latin America, Western Hemisphere, and then you were able to pivot that into really helping form policy. I know that you probably, that was part of probably your calculus of going to grad school, but yeah. what has that been like as well, balancing, you know, taking, you know, that, you know, zest and vigor for being involved, but then also, you know, making sure that you're at the forefront of your area of expertise. Because I know some people get really excited and they just want to be a part of it, but yeah. then as you grow and you become, you, you know, make this a career, you become then an expert of sorts. How did you decide? I know you're an ge economic ge geography major. <laughs> How did right. you pivot that? Or was that always kind of part of your interest? Obviously, you were interested in finance, yeah. but you never kind of let, you never did let that go really, right? So, you so everything you've mentioned is there's an opportunistic story about that. I, I majored in economic geography because I didn't want to take math and I wasn't good at math and I really wanted to major in economics, but uh, I didn't want to take, you know, the higher level math that was required for the economics major. So I ended up back in economic policy or economic geography, which actually it set me in the whole direction that I headed in because there was so much, there was a lot of international development studies. There was a lot of uh, development theory that was a part of geography. I went to UCLA during this incredible moment, this pivot point in the history of globalization where people, the initial backlash against globalization, the 2001 protests of the WTO negotiations in Seattle, that was, you know, such a big issue that day. Um, thinking about in, you know, I was in college at UCLA when 9-11 happened and thinking about America's role in the world and how are we perceived not just as a force for good, but also as a force for, you know, cultural neo-imperialism uh, and and all of these all of these trends that you know we still grapple with today but really we were confronting as a society for the first time in those days and geography turned out to be such an amazing discipline with which to analyze some of the, and ask some of those questions so that that was you know opportunistic that I ended up there but it really set me on on the the course that I've been able to follow today um, since then you know I went to grad school I ended up <laughs> I went to a grad program uh, and had to concentrate in two things, uh, economics and a field and a region, a field of study. Um, and I studied international affairs, which obviously I was passionate about from my geography days uh, and wanted to you know, work more in international finance and international affairs. 
Uh, Latin America was the region I chose purely because I had taken Spanish in college and uh, it was the easiest one for me to satisfy my foreign language requirement, which uh, was a personal struggle of mine, both in college and then in grad school. Uh, So these two things that were really hard for me in college, math and economics and foreign language, were two things I just dove myself into and forced myself to confront uh, in getting my master's degree. Luckily for me, it worked out and it turned out that by studying Latin America, Uh, And going to work in the Treasury Department, uh, you know, and it was just serendipity that I ended up getting assigned to be the Brazil desk officer at the Treasury when I when I got the role there. And Brazil is one of these countries I discovered, you know, when I went to the Treasury in 2008, it was at the peak of its sort of growth trajectory. Brazil was one of the big success stories in the financial crisis. And everybody was talking about these big emerging markets, China, India, Russia and Brazil. Well, let me tell you, everybody in my generation wants to be a China expert. Everybody in the generation before me is is already a Russia expert. There's a lot of people who focus on India, not as many as China, but still a lot. But nobody in the foreign policy world really does that much study about Brazil. So what I discovered is by by really honing in and becoming an expert on an area of uh, foreign policy and economics uh, that there isn't a lot of attention to, that I could there was a lot of runway for me and I could do great things. Uh, and it was ultimately that experience that led me to the White House, that led me to the National Security Council. And I think you know, the, the lesson in me for that is always take the interesting opportunity, even if you're not sure of where it's going to lead to, because it's just, it's just gonna create, you know, if you're passionate about it and uh, it's interesting to you and you think you'll have fun in that, in that role, in that position, then, you know, lots of things will come that you can't forecast and you can't foresee. Was there ever a part of you that, you know, again, you really thought, you know, you were really strategic and you said, hey, I have a larger runway here. Uh, Some people sometimes get worried, like, oh, I'm going to become that person forever. Yes. You know, like, oh, am I going to be the Brazil guy forever? Was that ever part of your thoughts as well? And, and I constantly struggle with this tension between wanting to be a generalist and being interested in so many different things and the need to really develop expertise and credibility and authenticity uh, on the issues that I purport myself to be an expert about, right? And I think a lot of people, especially a lot of successful people, struggle with, you know, I, I have to be... I have to be conversant across a wide range of issues. And I, I, I limit my opportunities by becoming too specific. But at the same time, as a generalist, you know, how confident can I feel, especially walking into positions of increasing responsibility, if I, if I haven't built that experience from the ground up? And for me, it's really, it's been a balance. It's been, you know, be honest about where your capabilities are, um, you know, never sell an employer or an organization, you know, oversell something on, on oversell yourself on, on what you're capable of delivering for them. But at the same time, don't be afraid to take risks and don't be afraid to follow your passions. And if there's something that, you know, you're interested in and you're honest about what you can bring to the table there and they still give you the opportunity, it means that they want you and it means that they believe that you can be successful in that role. Uh, And I've gotten to do some amazing things because of that. I I constantly do have a little bit of the imposter syndrome where I look around a room, particularly at my at my current job. uh, And I say, look at all these people who, you know, have worked in the markets for 20 years and, you know, we're all the same age, but they have so much more experience and they use these words I don't understand. But it turns out that that my experience is actually just as valuable to them. uh, And I have I have a lot to bring to the table, which is great. 
they're probably curious and wanting to pick your brain about all sorts of stuff too that they d- well, they've never experienced, right? Well, that is what I've learned. I have learned in finance that public policy and policy decisions and geopolitics and all of these things that I kind of took for granted as, as areas of passion that I've been privileged enough to work in over the course of my career actually have a huge impact on markets and, yeah. and the performance of investments over time. And just like in government, I used to say that the people who understand politics aren't the same people who understand good public policy. And if you're able to, if you're able to understand and speak both languages, you can be very successful in bringing people together. Uh, similarly, if you understand the policymaking progress process, but you work in finance, the investment process and policymaking process are very, very different. And we need people who understand both in order to help uh, both sides of the organization succeed. Uh, I will say in answer to your previous question, you know, if, if there's ever been a time where I've been super strategic about saying this is an opportunity that's going to lead to other good opportunities, it was back my first year at at my current firm. Uh, I had just gone gotten to Wall Street. I was really getting my feet wet, totally different organization, totally different culture, living in New York City after 13 years in Washington, DC. Everything's different. You know, I'm sort of feeling my way around. Uh, but it people were beginning to talk, you know, and I work for a very large, you know, uh, asset management company. We're not on the forefront of sustainability or, you know, any of these big emerging topics, but people were just beginning to talk about the transformation we were going to need to make in order to uh, become uh, more focused on sustainability. And I said, that's an issue that I want to get involved in. I want to help lead that. I want to, you know, be one of the first people uh, working on that within the firm, and that has turned into an incredible opportunity for me. So I would say when when you see those opportunities coming and you know it's going to be something big and it's something you're passionate about and that you're interested in, volunteer and, and put your hand up for sure. That's that's awesome. And just to see, you know, you're the head of sustainable investing and macro policy research, it's it sounds like a lot. So if you could tell us a little bit about a day in a life of what you do, sure. um, you talked a little about the culture shift that you had to make, but you know, now that you're in it, you know, what is it like to work at BlackRock? And especially as someone that had a very different experience before, how did you make that transition? And what do you like most about it now? So so the thing I like most about working in finance and working in my firm is that, you know, we are we are interested and we spend our time thinking through the same big picture questions that I did when I was in government. We just do it from a different perspective. And as investment managers, you know, we play this this very interesting role in the financial system. We take money from people who have saved it, who are our clients, who are retirees, who are you know individual folks with 401ks and and uh, and pension plans and IRAs. We also take money from big public pensions, so doctors or you know teachers, nurses, firefighters, those those folks who are relying on the savings that they they trust us with their savings to earn a return over time and deliver back to them, you know, the livelihood that they can live on during their retirement years. And that is an incredibly special trust that our clients place in us. And then it's our job to go out and find the opportunities in the market to have a view on how the world is going to develop, how the economy is going to develop, 
how individual markets and sectors are going to develop, where the next big thing is going to be in technology and manufacturing and all of these different sectors and which countries are going to grow faster than other countries. And to take those views and then take that savings people have trusted with us and invest it to earn a return so that we're not the ones, ultimately, we're not the ones who are making the decision, this company is going to succeed and this company is going to fail. But if we can, if we can pick the right one and we can pick those big, we can get those macro trends right, then we can deliver better, you know, good, good outcomes and good returns for our clients. Uh, and, and so it's a similar thought process to what we had in government, where at the end of the day, we're trying to develop policies that, uh, you know, impact people's lives and improve people's lives uh, and, and improve the quality of life uh, on whatever policy issue that we're working on. And what, what I've been struck with in my experience is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to work at a place where, uh, people are intellectually curious, where they ask a lot of questions, where people lead with, uh, you know, data and, and analysis rather than ego. Um, and, and that's been great. And I've, I've luckily found a place where I've, I've been able to succeed. I do. I have a really cool job. Uh, I oversee our sustainable investing initiative, which is now um, about 50 people across our, our no, single team, great. which is uh, we have a global team of about 250 people around the world. 50 of them are involved in our sustainable investing effort, and I, I get to uh, work with them and oversee that. Um, as you said, I work on macro policy research, so I help people understand what's happening in the policy space and what impact that might have on their markets that they're investing in. Uh, and I oversee our investment process. So I constantly go around and ask our different investment teams, okay, how are you making those decisions? What process improvements can you make in order to make better decisions on a more regular basis so that we can uh, more often deliver the kinds of outcomes that we're looking for? So it's a great job. And, and I get to ask a lot of questions and work with a lot of really smart people. And, and that's all I want. That's great. That's great. Do you feel that, you know, day to day, mo most of your day is often in meetings and communicating with folks? Or do you feel like you're often more, you know, reading, research, or maybe a little bit of both. What is, you know, I know that when it comes to work like this, it's not just having the academic or maybe like expertise mentally, but then also you probably have to have lots of conversations all the time. So That's what right. are the different skills you've been having to flex in this role? It's, it's a great question. I, I tend to, I spend, tend to spend most of my time listening mm -hmm. and asking questions and listening. And, you know, I, I remember five or 10 years ago when I, I realized that I had reached this moment in my career where I had gone from a place where people respected me based on the analysis I had done and the paper I had written and the, the uh, you know, advice I had given them. And I was transitioning into roles where people were counting on me and respecting me based on my judgment. And that I would be given information and people would success in that role would be determined on whether I would interpret that information in the right way and make the best decision. And I think having taking the time in the first you know, 10, 15 years of my career to really develop those analytical skills then allowed me to make that transition into roles where it's really more judgment based and people are bringing you, people are doing the work, bringing it to you and looking to you to make a decision that's going to have a good outcome, whether it's a good policy decision, a realistic political solution, uh, or, you know, investment decisions, resource management in, in a company. And if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a question for those of our, our listeners who are in that position of 
you know, they're becoming the judgment people, not the doer people. How do you, how did you transition to that? Because I'm sure being in politics and advocacy, you were on the ground doing the work. How did you make, like, what, did you have to change anything in yourself to say, hey, like, I'm going to let other people do the work so that I can focus on the judgment piece? Was there anything you had to do and change in yourself? Absolutely. First, you have to learn how to delegate. That continues to be a struggle for me. Uh, How do you, you know, when you know that you can do the job the best, how do you lift up and let somebody else do the job as they're going to do it, which may not be the way that you were going to do it. uh, But if, if it works out, great you know that it can be done a different way. And if it doesn't work out, that person can learn from that experience, then they'll do it better the second time. If you, I learned very quickly, if you micromanage, if you you have too heavy a hand, uh, then people will never feel comfortable. You know, they'll never be able to do it on their own and they'll never want to do it on their own because they can't do it in in the way that they want to do it. So learning to delegate is critical. Being open to critical feedback is incredibly important because you're going to make mistakes, you know, And, and especially as I think, People who are very good at, at being the doer, then moving into positions where you have to manage other people who are the doers, uh, you know, it, it's a different set of skills. And, and you have to have mentors and you have to have role models and you have to have people who support you. And you also have to go to people and say, you know, you have to feel comfortable saying, I don't think this turned out exactly the way I wanted it. Can you help me understand how I could do it better? And can you give me some feedback on the way I am running this process so that so that it can get a little better. And, and I think that's, you know, all of that. I remember when I graduated from UCLA and I had been the president of the UC Student Association. I had served on the board of the U.S. Student Association. And I went into my first job and I was like, I, I can do this. You know, I'm like this big deal. Right. And it was only slowly over the next 10 years, really, that I, I realized how much I had to learn and how much maturing I had to do in my own professional career development. And I think that you can you can easily in today's world where you're jumping around from job to job and you're constantly looking for an exciting new thing you can easily leapfrog those and i actually was at the treasury department i was promoted i think i was promoted too early into a position of management and i was a terrible manager and i just mm-hmm. you know i thought i could do it and i i just didn't have the skill set then and i think taking the time to really build the cap- capacity the capability the confidence as a leader uh, and then by the time you arrive to those jobs, you'll you'll be 100% more successful than you would otherwise. That's great. Thank you for that advice. I think sometimes we forget that learning how to supervise and lead a team, you have a team of 50 people. That's not easy, right? You have 50 people who are, you know, working with you, through you, and you're also working with them as well and trying to guide their careers in a way. So thank you for that, for sharing that. Um, well, we would be doing a disservice to this podcast if we didn't ask you about your time at the White House. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm sure people are like, oh, I want to hear more. But, you know, <laughs> you touch on your experience. You've shared a little bit about it. And we can use it. We can use it through the lens of, you know, for those that are interested in politics or working for the White House. You know, what was what was that experience like? Do you have any like takeaways that you learned from that experience? And if people want to pivot into that part of their career, what would you suggest that they take a, like bring to the table? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it depends on, so first of all, I was incredibly privileged and incredibly lucky to have a bunch of really cool opportunities in both policy and politics. And, you know, working at the White House is just a singular experience that you can't replicate in any other part of your life and very few people get to do it. And I just feel so fortunate to be able of, you know, as a, as a sort of, 
you know, average kid from Northern California who never really saw themselves, you know, either in Washington to begin with, or, you know, at this, at this apex of our American institutions, it was such a, such a cool thing. I mean, at the, I'll tell you this, and then I'll answer your question. At, at, in the Obama administration, everybody who left got to come and take a departure photo in the Oval Office with, with the president. Uh, and I remember, you know, you got the phone call a week before the photo was going to be scheduled. And I, I called my mom and dad immediately. And I said, we're buying you a plane ticket. We're coming out here because I can bring you into the family, in, into the photo. And I remember just, you know, the look on my parents' face when they stepped into the Oval Office. It It is designed to be this, you know, overwhelming place where you're sort of humbled and, you know, you say whatever the president wants you to say. That's the whole purpose of the room. Uh, but, you know, my parents walked in there and they were just in awe of this place that they had been hearing about for so long, but never thought that they would actually experience for themselves. So it's, it's such a cool, it's such a cool place. Um, you know, I, I almost didn't take the job uh, because I was an economist at the Treasury Department and they offered me this job as the director on the National Security Council. And I was going to not just do the economic policy, but also have to do diplomacy and military affairs and all these things I didn't care about. And I remember my best friend, uh, I was having dinner with her in Washington one night and I was saying, you know, I, I just don't know if I'm that interested in it. And she said, you have to take this job. You only get one opportunity to work in the White House, to work for the President of the United States. If you don't take this job, you will regret it for the rest of your life. And it turned out to be all of the best stories I can tell are from that those years. Uh, and it doesn't really matter what you're doing. It's like you, you have to do it. Um, I think if you are passionate about political issues, volunteer on a campaign, learn how campaigns operate, you know, work with the organizations. If you're, at, if, you're, if you're passionate about political issues, work, get involved, volunteer with the organizations that work on those issues. If you want to work on a candidate campaign, you know, start by knocking doors, talk to people. There's a lot of people on political campaigns who don't actually like to talk to voters, either phone bank or knock on doors. You've got to get that experience. You've got to know how to persuade people um, and, and build that experience. If you're interested in policy, you should study the policymaking process. If you're a current student, you should take classes at Luskin. You should learn the, you know, the process of, of public policy analysis and be able to get away from the debate about values and emotion and get into the real empirical problem-solving process that you learn in public policy. And if you're, if you're not a student and you want to get involved in policy issues, there's so many advocacy organizations and think tanks that write policy briefs that, that do this analysis. And you should start reading those just to expand your own knowledge on the issues that you care about. Be able to talk knowledgeably about uh, you know, the policy proposals from people that you agree with, but also the, you know, the criticism of those and the policy proposals of the people who you don't agree with so that you can, you know, knowledgeably be able to engage in debate with people who think different from you. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, well, I have one more final prepared question for you. Um, yeah. and it has to do with the title of our podcast, which is Bruin's Success. Um, and what does, so what does success mean to you? Um, how have you defined it in your life and how have you lived it out? Yeah, it's it's a good question, and you know, I think I think there's a lot of ways that I could come uh, from this. The first the first one is obviously, you know, success is doing something interesting that gets me out of bed in the morning, where I get to have an impact, um, where I get to affect people's lives, where I get to feel like I'm making a difference in people's lives. Even in finance, you know, in the for profit corporate sector, where I feel like at the end of the day, we're serving our clients, we're 
we're um, delivering a return that'll allow people to live a dignified retirement and meet their financial objectives. That's that's the goal. Um, and that I have fun doing it. I work with interesting people. Uh, I like, uh, you know, people are smart and, and capable and ask good questions and they challenge me. Uh, I think I think that's definitely success. Um, but to take it, you know, one layer more personal to me, I think that, um, you know, growing up as uh, a young LGBT person uh, before I came out, you know, I, I grew up at this moment in history where the generation before me had to kind of choose between being open about who they were and their identity and the kind of professional and social success uh, that they could have if they didn't come out and just sort of blended into society. And so to me, you know, going back to that core, you know, identity of who I am, success is really finding the way to be able to do the things in the world that you want to do and to have the impact that you know you can have. And then being able to, you know, make tweaks to the system that enables and encourages other people to be able to do those things as well. Um, so I think that part of it is systemic. Part of it is like, Success is being able to navigate the obstacles that confront you and then overcome those to be able to achieve your full potential. But the personal responsibility of that to me is the need to re constantly reflect on your own experience, learn from it, and then challenge yourself to take it to the next level. Wow, love it. <laughs> it's so inspiring to hear that you not only, you know, measure success professionally, but you also personally and just to hear you also put your own personal success in the framework of those in your community, that people that came before you, and then also those that are going to come after you. You're super involved in, you know, different organizations, not just political, you know, politics and, you know, campaigns, but also, you know, in moving forward your community. That's been a part of your, um, not in your, you know, just uh, in your graduate school. And then also now you're also serving on the board of directors for UCLA Alumni Association. So I, I would be remit, I would be bad if I didn't mention that and that you're giving back to your alma mater in that way. And so thank you for all that you continue to do to not only pay it forward, but also to look back and honor those that came before you. And um, it's been so exciting just to like hear your story and hear all the ways that you've grown yourself, but and also given back to the community around you. Um, well, that's very kind. Thanks yeah. a lot. Well, now we're going to do some fun rapid fire questions. This is something we wanted to do to just get, you know, more little tidbits out of our guests. And so All right. our first rapid fire question is what is a great book or article you've read recently? Great question. So, so I am obsessed with these firsthand accounts right now of our withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I think, and so that was, you know, in, in this sort of botched withdrawal that happened in, in the early days of, of August or the middle of August uh, in our withdrawal, our closing of the embassy and getting our personnel out. I think part of that comes from my experience actually working in the national security apparatus and knowing how these policies are, are contemplated and these decisions are made. But part of it is also just reading these harrowing firsthand accounts of people who risked their lives, who you know didn't know what was happening, uh, who you know rushed to the airport and risked everything to get their families out and diplomats who were trying to help people. You know, it just, it, it's such a critical moment, I think, for our nation and for policymakers to understand what happened, what went wrong, what we can learn from that experience. And I'm, I'm 
kind of obsessed with with some of these reporters who were there who had the opportunity to leave early and chose not to so that they could tell the story. So, you know, I, I read everything I can by Clarissa Ward of CNN or Marcus Yam had had a great, you know, journal in the LA Times recounting his own his own experience. And I just think, you know, without these people who take the risk to write these firsthand accounts, we wouldn't have these stories of what happened on the ground in those really important days that I think will will be really impactful in, in the future of our foreign relations as a country. Awesome. Uh, next rapid fire question, what is your favorite place on campus? Uh, that one is hard. I mean, I so I lived on campus for all well five years that I was a student. Uh, I was a I was a super senior because I was uh, that was the year I was on USAC. So I lived in Reaper Hall for four of those five years. So spent a lot of time and and a lot of sweat in that building. Kirkhoff is where I had my office in student government. So that's also a, a place where I have a lot of great memories. But the place that is most sentimental to me, I think, is Louval Commons. And I remember mm -hmm. as a geography student, a policy student, someone who sort of dreamed of going to law school. And, and that was my definition of success when I was an undergrad. Uh, Louval was the place where there were so many interesting people having so many interesting conversations and debates. And I would always run into people I knew and the food was terrible, but the conversation was good and the weather was nice. So <laughs> it, when I think back of great sentimental moments on campus, it's probably there. Yeah. So the unsung hero of our uh, different right. cafes on campus, <laughs> right? right. Um, okay. And then last rapid fire question is, what is your favorite UCLA memory? Yeah, I really, I, this one's hard. Um, I, I think that, you know, we used to, and I don't know if they still do this for USAC elections, but all the candidates who were running for USAC used to put up this, what they called a signboard, a big billboard on Bruin Walk. And it, you know, it had your fate, you would paint it, it would be like a superhero or some like other, you know, billboard for your candidacy. And I remember all the people who were running on my slate, got together at a park in Palms. Most of the folks I was running with lived in Palms. Uh, and we, we got together, we grilled lunch, we sat around, we painted, we designed our signboards, different people painted. And, and it, was my, it was a beautiful Saturday afternoon. And I remember thinking to myself, here's a group of people who are so passionate about the issues they care about. They're giving up time, they're contributing what, what their talents are, whether it's grilling meat or you know, designing what a signboard should look like, or in my case, just painting because I can't draw and I really can't cook that well either. Um, but I'm also, you know, I'm the one who's running. So uh, uh, it really, it, it was a great moment in uh, feeling like I had really built a community and I had found the right place for me on campus. Oh, that sounds fun. That Those are always the fun, fun memories. That's of just right. being together for a common goal. So, um, well, before we end our interview, I just wanted to ask, do you have any other final words that you would want to share with our listeners before we sign off? Yeah, you know, I, I think that I think that living in, growing up in California and coming to school at UCLA, you know, it's definitely, it's the center of the entertainment industry, uh, but you can feel sometimes like the, the solutions to the big problems we face are, can be far away. They can be in Silicon Valley, which is not in LA. They can be in Washington. They can be in other capitals. They can be in war zones or other places around the world. Um, but I think that you, know, you should never be afraid of the big questions and you should never be afraid to think that there's a role for yourself in addressing those big challenges that we face. And it's just a matter of you know, finding what is that role? Is it being a community organizer? Is it signing petitions? Is it joining clubs? Is it running for office yourself? Is it, you know, changing your career to work in an area that you're more passionate about? I think that 
everyone's got a role to play in making our society better. Uh, and, you know, I, I would challenge everybody to think carefully, you know, and critically about what that role is. A perfect way to end our first interview of 2022. Thank you so much, Matt, for your time Thanks. today, um, for sharing with us so much of your journey, of your experiences. I know I learned a lot just in this time. And, you know, I, I'm so thankful that we have someone like you that is not only, you know, in the role and industry you are, but also in our own community as a board of direct, as a director on our board of directors. So, um, but well, thanks for having me. It's been great to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for our interview with Matt Kazmer. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. As a new part of the podcast, we will be sharing a career tip at the end of each episode. This week's tip is about informational interviews. Similar to our podcast, an informational interview is merely the act of asking questions to gain a better understanding. Have you been curious about a specific industry or role? Reach out to Bruins that have raised their hand on UCLA One to do an informational interview with you. Go to www.uclaone.com to create a profile and search the directory for Bruins in your desired field or roles. You can filter for alumni who have said they are available to do interviews. Templates are available if you aren't sure what to say, but introduce yourself and ask for 30 minutes of their time. Prepare a quick set of questions and be professional and earnest in your interview. You don't know what you might learn, but be sure to follow up with a thank you and potential next opportunity to meet. Approach this like a journalist would. Bruins are available to support you, so don't miss out just because you're afraid of bothering someone. If you have a career tip of your own and would like to be featured on the podcast, you can email a voice memo or a written tip to ace at support.ucla.edu. We look forward to highlighting your strategies for success with the Bruin community. Join us for more episodes in the coming weeks and follow us on the UCLA Alumni Career Engagement and UCLA Alumni Association Facebook and Instagram handles, which we'll put in the show notes. Thanks for listening, Bruins.